Hello and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode we're joined by Charles Tuba to discuss the book Rory O'Brody, The Life and Politics of an Irish Revolutionary by Robert White, published by Indiana University Press in 2006. The discussion looks at O'Brody's strand of republicanism and in particular the policies of abstentionism and the era new policy outlining a federal Irish state. This is one of a series of episodes centred on particular books to discuss key issues in the history of the Irish left and republicanism. We've spoken to Charles previously uh, in episode 25 when we discussed official Irish republicanism by Sean Swan and also heard about Charles' own political background and interest in Irish republican history, including visiting Ireland and finding himself inadvertently on a republican Sinn Féin march. There are several relevant documents in the Irish Left Archive collection, which you'll find at leftarchive.ie. In particular, copies of Erinua from Sinn Féin and later from Republican Sinn Féin, and also the 1986 Chlorogus Rune from uh, the Sinn Féin Ardesh, which we'll link to in the notes. Thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast, and thanks to Charles for joining us for this episode. Thanks, Angus. We're here. Um and we have Charles Tuber, who is here with us in our second sequence of podcasts, who is discussing the Sean Swan, well, his own political um, background in activism and the Sean Swan book on the official Republican movement and the roots of that and how that developed in the late 1960s out of Sinn Féin and out of Republicanism prior to the split with um, provisional Sinn Féin. And then we thought about what we discussed this time. And uh, Charles decided... Well, he didn't. He suggested that we look at uh, Rory O'Brady, The Life and Politics of an Irish Revolutionary by Robert White, uh, which has a foreword by uh, Ed Maloney. And it's a fascinating book. Uh, it was published, I think, for the first time in 2006. Robert White is the Dean of Indiana University School of Liberal Arts and Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Indianapolis. Charles, you want to talk about why we selected this book yeah hey uh good to be back guys i appreciate you having me back on um i think for for me it was a book worth rereading right i mean i've been reading about the troubles in irish history now for 15 20 years uh, a little bit more than that and some books you read through once and that's fine that's good and it just kind of sits on a shelf and it collects dust and a few of them were about things that were interesting enough uh, about figures that were charismatic enough and nuanced enough and writing that was good enough. Um, and I think that's one of the things that drew me back. This was an interesting book that instead of just saying, okay, I now know this and it goes on the shelf to collect dust, which is the fate of all too many books that I've read over the years, I, I kept pulling it out and it made me want to dig deeper about, you know, Republicanism and that in the West of Ireland, that tradition. Um, and then it really, it, it, not a prequel to the lost revolution or official republicanism but it certainly is a good counterbalance to that and the roots of the early provisional movement and some of those people who were involved in that one and does so in a way that is nuanced uh yet sympathetic and warm and uh keeps you coming back for more mm. yeah i think i mean i'll put my cards on the table i think personally i think it's an excellent book which has a real command of its topic of its subject and uh, it gives a real insight into that strand of republicanism which i think O'Brady represents so very well and and in a sense um 
although it's it, I, I think you can't look you can't read the book and not say this is not sympathetic to its subject but uh i think it does do it justice broadly speaking now i'd have a few areas of um i don't know if i'd be critical um but i'm not sure that i exactly go with all the uh the conclusions in a sense or maybe not so much the conclusions but some of the observations and it strike me as coming from a certain angle but i think it's uh it's a very interesting book it really as you say it's not a companion piece of those other volumes that you mentioned and i also think of ed maloney's work as well and indeed the work on the inla uh and the rsp deadly divisions but it's certainly a book which fills in as you say it fills in that niche area that yet at the same time is so important for us to understand in terms of how the Republican movement or movements, plural, developed through the 70s, into the 80s, into the 90s, the peace process and so on. So it is, it is, it's a useful book and it's one that I think anybody would, with an, an interest in the area would take away quite a lot from. Um, where to begin then? Well, I, I would say, I would say last time we used abstentionism as a stocking horse hmm. to talk about everything but abstentionism and, and that's the elephant in the room yeah, I mean, in a sense, if one looks at uh, O'Brady's family backgrounds, if you look at the, and I mean, actually, it's, it's no harm in a sense to sit down and actually talk about, um, O'Brady came from family, his father was born in 1890, Matt Brady in Longford, um, his mother was born, interestingly, in Belfast nine years later, um, both were active in the, um, in what essentially became Irish Republicanism. Um, in the early 1910s through well long after that um, they took the uh, republican side in the treaty the anti-treaty side they didn't go with Eamon de Valera and Fianna Fáil because interestingly abstention was a huge part of their political self-identity O'Brady himself was born in and I just have to get the date here he was born in 1932 as Rory Brady in Longford, Ireland. Um, and interestingly, in 1934, his father was elected to Longford County Council. Now, the father, his father, Matt, had been injured in 1919. He was shot um, during the Anglo-Irish War and he recuperated in Dublin. In fact, there's an interesting account in the book of how he's moved around from hospital to hospital to keep one head, uh, keep one step ahead of the British. Um, and as I say, he'd taken the anti-treaty side he had been very clear in that. So it's interesting that he then winds up in Longford County Council, and we can talk about that in a few minutes. And O'Brody himself, born, as it says there, in 1932, is born into a family where Republicanism is part and parcel of the, I think it's fair to say, the family identity. Uh, his father dies in 1942. From my reading of it, I think from the book, he dies from wounds that those wounds that were incurred in 1919 and O'Brody then goes through in some ways a rather traditional lifestyle or, or life course of people at that period he attends St. Mel's of Longford um, he in 1950 enrolls at University College Do Dublin that same year he joins Sinn Féin and that year he changes his name to Rory O'Brody from the English aspect of it. His mother remarries, marries a man called Patrick Tuhig, who is a very strong Gaelgore. So he seems to have been a huge influence on O'Brody and O'Brody seems to have been very fond of him. In 1951, he joins the IRA in Dublin. In 1955, 
He leads the IRA Arborfield Raid and he's elected to the IRA Executive Council. In 1956, he joins the Accord of Sinn Féin. And um, in 1956 as well, he is part of, he's obviously part and parcel of Operation Harvest and the um, border campaign. But in 1956, he's elected to Leinster House, interned in the Curragh, escapes and becomes IRA Chief of Staff. Uh, by 1962, he's a member of the IRA Army Council. And of course, that's the same year that the IRA campaign uh, ends. And he's actually Chief of Staff when the IRA campaign ends, when the orders to is given to um, essentially put down weapons and to put them away, put them out of, well, there's an interesting aspect of that as well. Um, and he appears to be a member of the IRA Army Council all the way through to the split in 1969, when Sinn Féin and the IRA split into officials and provisionals over recognition of Leinster House, Stormont and Westminster. He uh, becomes in 1970 president of provisional Sinn Féin and is reported a founder member of the provisional IRA. And he keeps that position of president of provisional Sinn Féin right the way through the 1970s up until 1983, when he's succeeded by Jerry Adams. Uh, it's worth saying as well that, just to cue this up, uh, in 1972, himself and Dahi O'Connell developed Sinn Féin's federalism policy, often referred to as Area New. Now, there's some talk, I think, in uh, the book that some other figures are involved in the development of that pre-split inside the Republican movement. He resigns in 1983 as president of Provisional Sinn Féin, already by then, Erin Ewer has been superseded as the policy of Provisional Sinn Féin. In 1986, Sinn Féin recognises Leinster House and Spitz. There's the formation of Republican Sinn Féin and the continuity IRA. Uh, O'Brody becomes first president of RSF and McGuinness Adams and the others, uh, the leading provisionals, as it says, pledge never to enter Stormont. Um, by the 1990s, the provisional IRA enters into secret talks with British representatives. There's a ceasefire in 1994. O'Brien is a leading critic, as it says here. Uh, the continuity IRA emerges in 1996 with the end of the provisional IRA ceasefire, part of the um, peace process. Uh, in 1997, he criticised the second provisional IRA ceasefire and is excluded from Canada. By 1998, we have the Good Friday Agreement and Provisional Sinn Féin enters Stormont. And by 2005, the IRA, Provisional IRA, ends its campaign. Of course, Continuity IRA continues, and Republican Sinn Féin continues as well. So that, in a sense, is the potted history of the key events, as it says here in the book, in the life of Rory O'Brody. Uh, and there's so much to discuss in that, isn't there? I would just say, fuck it, we're done. Now you can start drinking. <laughs> just, you have it all wrapped up right there it's it's neat it's tidy uh oh, good job yeah thank no, you there, there there very much is and like so many things let's i think there's two key elements to, to kind of go back and maybe start with which is um from the o'brady family and again we're talking about a person but we're also talking about the book right mm. and this is this is our window into that person's world mm. so how i read it and and how i was kind of taking it in was that essentially for the o'brady family although there was mention of the finians and the young islanders and blah 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 blah, blah 1916 was year zero 
Yeah. Right. And it was and and the politics and the Easter Rising were sacrosanct. Mm. And I think there is very much, uh, although obviously he's he's Catholic, there strikes me as a very puritanical streak, which I don't think that it's that odd for the time or, or for the place. Right. But even just for the time, I, I feel like that's that's not not normal. But certainly think about someone like, say, Sean South, right, that these days is, is kind of written off as, as, as a zealot and a Catholic nationalist uh, in the worst possible way. But I don't think it was that unheard of, right? A very Gaelic, very Catholic, very provincial, if that's the right word, kind of take on that one. And that's mm. how, I, how I took talking about his father, who, who was never well after... Uh, um, 1919. Yeah, after, I don't want to call it a boxed ambush, but an ambush of some RIC that did not quite go to plan. Yeah. Uh, was wounded and obviously uh, suffered terribly for the rest of his life uh, mm. due to those wounds, which obviously led him to an early, early death. But those two things, and I think that actually covers the, oh, it's a starting point for the abstentionist debate, right? And then mm. how we get so muddled from what is quite honestly a tactic to, to, a paradigm or, or a principle that that cannot be you know questioned because that's really well there's a whole conversation here right it really was o'brady did he die on the hill of abstentionism or did he die on the hill of federalism and and the abstentionism gave him the the cover that he needed to exit because obviously with the end of the federalism project within the provisionals mm. that marked his his Exit from the leadership is what I would argue. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead. I mean, there's another angle on the abstention stuff as well, which I think is that the father was elected to, the Matt Brady was elected to a county council. And, you know, I mean, you've made the points when we were throwing this back and forth. The county councils derive their authority from the same state as Lancer House. And Stormont's. I mean, they're different parts of the same state body, as you rightly say. It's you. You can say yes, they're very local, and you can say yes, they, they, they. The vote that occurs is a vote that occurs within a local context or a localized context, but the authority under which they actually operate is that of the broader state. And and it's interesting to me that that would become so central and such a huge issue and that that's the area where there would be this enormous dissent within republicanism uh, and i mean i get it obviously like you know there's uh, there's any man any manifestation of the state is going to be problematic if 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 there's a situation of occupation as one sees it or not or as it may actually be or indeed if there's a, an, a situation where um one feels that the polity is in, in, other sense, in any sense held hostage by another policy or by another political establishment. But it's hard to understand exactly why a local county council is somehow different, fundamentally different to those other things, at least insofar as its validation, its legitimization comes, okay, it comes from a democratic vote, but so does Leinster House. I would not disagree with that at all. I mean, for for me, honestly, looking at and let's be honest, right? The 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 rump of the abstentionist vote was Western Ireland, and for better or for worse, their year zero was not only 1916, 
but actually for for say like the carried republicans right mm. it was the civil war mm. right so abstentionism well free statism versus republicanism versus but abstentionism recognizing the compromise in, in a lot of places in western ireland the the worst violence was the civil war right it wasn't even the british it was the civil war and that is the year zero that is what steered into them um that's if you want to call it the original sin right mm -hmm. lynch house being the original sin the compromise of free state that to me is that and you see that and then you're going to see that later and i am going to jump ahead because i can't do anything in a lineal fashion right. but you see the same thing with the birth of provisionals in the north right for mm -hmm. many of the provisionals especially as the war wore on 1969 was just zero not 1916 mm -hmm. right i mean yeah. the republic of ireland was an abstraction that they saw on their TV screens that were celebrating their heroes that were painted on the gable wall. But what brought it home was the burning of Bombay Street. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think those are the some of those different uh, takes. There's, there's another angle as well, which is interesting, because by the time that, um, you know, by the time we get to the 50s and O'Brody, who is seeped in this tradition, moves into um, into political activity and into activity in the Republican movement. There's this this is reading, reading the history, what came back to me very forcibly was, for all that there was abstention, there was this huge investment in electoralism in a peculiar sort of fashion. You have like the 1955 Westminster election, and it was regarded as important to Sinn Féin because they wanted to build a constituency in the North amongst nationalists, who, of course, were second-class citizens in the North at that point in time. And this brings up contradictions because, of course, if nationalists are second-class citizens, is it citizenry which is the issue, or is it the, is it the state of Northern Ireland, and or the semi-state or whatever we want to call it, a, 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 a partial state or a sub-state? It's this contradiction between, like, where does the actual lever exist whereby they're actually going to have to be engaged with and and what are they trying to do are they using this as exemplary and demonstrative that you go into an election Sinn Féin goes into an election or builds a constituency and then of course it doesn't take up any seats because it's not going to do that and then there's another angle on this which is that in elections by elections and all the rest of it uh even if people don't take their seats ironically the electoralism itself and electoral activity becomes to some degree central and pressure begins to build up i suspect inside a movement for people to not merely contest seats but to take the seats so for instance saying by elections in the south or elections in the south people say well we're not going to go into leinster house rory O'Brody, though himself had contested a seat and that seat was important to um you know to the republican movement he became a td now, he never sat in Leinster House, but the very fact that he'd been elected a TD, you can well imagine there'd be people there saying, well, sure, why don't you go the other step, Rory? And why don't you go and sit in Leinster House and then say, this is our programme, this is what we want to do. And O'Broide, of course, is never going to make that journey. But I can see how, the weirdly, he's part of a process in and of himself, which is building up these stresses and tensions inside the Republican movement. Whereas, in fact, if they'd actually said, not merely do we abstain from taking our seats, we actually abstain from engaging in elections full stop. We're simply not going to do that. But of course, they can't quite do that because they need to have some proof that what they're attempting to do 
has some level of support. By the way, I should just point out, I made an error there. It's not the um, 1955 Westminster election. It's a 1955 uh, Doyle election. Yeah, sorry, 1956 uh, O'Brien is, is elected, as I said before, to Leinster House. And that just shows up the contradictions in a sense of the Republican movement. Because he actually complains to the Guardian at one point and complaints are made that the fact that he is an elected representative is arrested. Which seems to be, again, contradictory in the context of what he's trying to do. What's your feelings about that? Yeah, no, you're right. And there, well, there's a couple of things there, right? So um, you, you mentioned, obviously, starting out the 1955 election, and then mm. you kind of talk about how Adams and company uh, would view that. I would, I would draw, it's all about context. And that's, I, get, I wish it was like more exciting or sexy, but the context of the 1955 elections uh, in, in the South and then, or the Republic of Ireland, mm. and then obviously the future elections in, in the North of Ireland, um, I think are very different contextually. And I also think by-elections, man, by-elections are that wild card because what they serve as is not as a, validation of a belief system writ large in, mm. in my humble opinion it's it's a literal time stamp right i mean mm. we're going down this path the obvious point here is the h block candidates right mm. bobby sands uh there no one was asking in that one right for support for the ira armed campaign that would not have got him enough votes to get elected but with that by-election it was a vote on the nature of the troubles and it Again, right? It was. It's a timestamp. It's mm. literally just like an opinion poll. That, not, that doesn't do it quite justice. But I, I feel like by elections are such wild cards, anyways, mm. that they're not the same thing. Mm. But you're right, and there's there is that that kind of sense of electoralism, and you've discussed it, right? Where there's that there's that mass mobilization, and then there's okay, just go home, and we'll tell you when the secret army needs you again. Mm. And that's that's a really conflicting message for people to, to kind of to buy into. And it makes it all the more confusing because like you said, right? The councils are okay, but but the, the state house is not. And it's kind of like, it's all attached to the same body, but you have to chop off your forearm because that's not acceptable, but your fingers are still legitimate. It's like one doesn't work without the other. Yeah. And, and so abstentionism from the get-go is problematic as, as an overriding principle mm. and, and then if you link it in say to operation harvest it's not clear to me what the long-term aim of operation harvest was in a strategic sense now obviously operation harvest was there to say we're still here we can actually um cause for want of a better word we can cause trouble we can we can cause we can be a destabilizing um, elements inside the context of Northern Ireland, but in the sense of, uh, but in and of itself, like the 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 the, the utilization of the resources that were there available was quite limited, and you know there was a decision not to um, have any um, actions in Belfast. Now it's interesting. White's reading of this, or at least O'Brien's reading, seems to be that this was nothing to do with the dangers to the um, nationalist communities inside Belfast. This is more to do with they didn't have, it's not actually entirely sure why, it's not entirely clear why they decide not to do um, actions there. But I've always 
took it as under I've always understood it that was in order not to destabilize the situation there. But but it's interesting then how Operation Harvest tallies in with this uh with the other aspect of the political um activity at that time. Essentially Operation Harvest was the original they haven't gone away you know moment, right? Mm. Where it we talked about it last time and it tried to, to, to like have a foot in both camps of modern guerrilla warfare um, post-World War II in which the world was very different from the 1920s, right, or 19-teens, and also stick with those rules of the Geneva Convention, rules of engagement, and mm. how that operated. But, it, boy, I don't, I don't know how to say this. Well, in, in many ways, Operation Harvest and Rory O'Brady are mere images of each other and that like he was the man for his time but like we said last time it really does beg the question which comes up with the rise of the young provisionals in the 70s and 80s is was that the right approach for the entity of northern ireland and i I would think that the answer in the long term obviously in both instances the answer was no from a historical standpoint whether that's the right way or the wrong way that's that's for other people to decide but you know, O'Brady had his fingerprints all over that one, and that marked the generational shift of the handoff from the original Republicans, uh, who basically saw the campaign in the 40s and, and, and from the, the War of Independence to a, a new guard, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And Operation Harvest was their, was their attempt at it. It was their, temp, it was their tilt at the windmill. And unfortunately, in many ways, it was uh, chaotic in mm-hmm. its endeavor. Mm-hmm. Or maybe thankfully. I mean... And- yeah. We keep saying that. That is. I mean, it's it's, and we're going to get more into it as we as we progress forward. But we're obviously we're we're broaching the modern troubles, which mm. I, I I can't help but feel like in the context of the times that we're speaking right now, mm. um, it's a it's a sombering it's a sombering thought and tone. Mm. I mean, I was going to say just in relation to harvest. I mean, it's it's not even by those who propounded it and those who who uh, carried it forward it was a failure they regarded it as a failure and then the shadow of that inflects everything although actually given how late it was in the day that it was brought to a halt um you know it was seven eight years before the split but it's it 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 inflects everything that then comes afterwards because it is almost regarded as well we've tried this sort of armed struggle and this doesn't work so now where do we go next? And of course, people like Goulding, Magyula, I guess, um, Garland, Costello have one answer and McStiffon, Dahi O'Connell and O'Brody have a, set, have a different answer completely. Um, now, this, of course, then brings in the whole issue of anti-communism. And I, I had had this thought that perhaps anti-communism was key to Sinn Féin and, I, and the IRA in the 50s. And even into the 60s, although things begin to shift. But you seem to have a slightly different take on that. Well, yeah, it, there's two things, right? I'd have to go back to my notes. But, but the rule about no communists and no action in the free state was about not wanting to drag a free state into Operation Harvest, right? Why? If you're about to start a race, don't shoot yourself in the foot, right? So, so virtue signal. And again... It's also a genuine reflection, right? That many of them were devout Catholics. They were devout, you know, church and country. And mm. and in 
a genuine term of patriot, right, or, or nationalist. And I know that's got a very right-wing tilt these days for obvious reasons, mm. but I think we have to be able to appreciate things for their time, right? Mm. The, the level of faith in the country of Ireland up until the latter part of the 20th century is is mind-boggling and astounding. And I think it's held out there much longer than in many other places for, for better or for worse. I, obviously there's been a, well, a number of things that I don't need to go into that everyone, all listeners will know better than I do mm. about that. But I don't think that it's necessarily that one. And again, there's always that, uh, you know, call it the Jesuit, call it the, I mean, it is the incipient liberation theology teachings, which obviously liberation theology does not exist at that point. But the seeds were always there, right? The leveling tendency of the Catholic Church, maybe not in Ireland, but in other places, that is there, and just of Christian teaching in general. Mm. So I, I would take it, I would say like half dogmatic, half pragmatic would mm. maybe be the way that I would uh, frame it. Because mm. it's, it's interesting how, the, for instance, O'Brody at his trial in 1956 makes the case that he is of a, of a lineage that includes those fighting in Hungary in that same year against uh, the Soviets and the uh, intervention or invasion by the Soviets in Hungary in that period. And he positions himself in similar anti-imperialist language throughout that in his trial. Um, but the, the, the political content of that is a little bit hard to quite understand because the book makes a very strong case that O'Brody's views of these matters were that the IRA and Sinn Féin zigzagged left and right, depending on the time that something was happening. So, for instance, 1930s, there was a sort of swing somewhat to the left. The 1940s, you could argue that the swing was in exactly the opposite direction and maybe even further again. And then the 50s, almost an apolitical angle, not quite, but but shifting back from the right, but still a sort of apolitical aspect to it and then in the 60s of course it's swinging towards the left again and O'Brody seems to be a little bit like Zelig insofar as he is there throughout all of this um, now he's not unremarked upon I have to say so it's not like Zelig in that sense but he's not um, there's not a there's not a strong sense in the book that he actually was seeing any reason to have a rupture or a break with what was coming through and what has been very, very ably de described by Swan in his book. Um, you know, this idea almost of a new party, a party where there were political soldiers and so on and so forth, a party very, very much of not just the left, but the further left and uh, inflected very strongly by Marxism and so forth. But O'Brady hanging on right the way through all this process. And I've, I had wondered I'd read the book before when it came out and I, when I was rereading it for this, I was thinking to myself, perhaps this will explain how he hung on. Was it for dear life right the way through the 60s as like Coslo's coming up with plans and Garland's coming up with plans and they're talking about a very, very different sort of IRA. An IRA that in some respects is moving away from militarism. And then I'm thinking, well, no, he just seems to have been happy to stay on board almost to the bitter end. I, and I'm, where do you feel that that sits in with his own philosophy and his approach. That's a good question. Um, That's why I asked it. For fuck's sake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, my thought process is, let me go back to actually kind of talking about the, the, the book here, right? Because mm. I, I, I want to break the fourth wall. 
And I do want to reference why I like these books is that they, they talk to each other. Our first conversation, this one, um, you know, Swan, Swan's work focuses on the process during the 1960s of the new departure and what that looked like all around and has a, a larger conversation, right? It includes more parties in that conversation, Northerners, uh, yep. Dubliners, the West, whereas White's work being the authorized biography of Roy O'Brady uh, focuses on O'Brady's journey, which in this reading of it, cues very much towards that traditionalist line, which we've always talked about, which is the commies came in, they were willing to be on board as long as the army was kept up because yeah. it needed to rebuild. And then when they tried to take it a step too far and the army was found wanting and they were gonna, they were gonna cross that line, right? The, the abstentionist line of that's one of the sacred tenets of modern Irish Republicanism then that was that was the bridge too far for him, and he said, "Fuck it, I'm out." And and the provisionals were born. Um, you know, it is hard to see how how people like McStalfin and and O'Brady were there. And this one did focus a little bit more on maybe the personal interactions, mm. how maybe they kept on, and it wasn't they played their cards close to the chest. They didn't trust them, mm. but. Maybe like a later Jerry Adams, right? They said, "Well, keep your friends close to your enemies closer, and let's just kind of, kind of see what happens and see mm. what develops from it." And honestly, man, I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? Mm. We talked about it last time after Operation Harvest, everything was done. They had to start from scratch in the modern space, and that new departure was a testing of that. Um, I'm still not happy with. Aside from O'Brady's kind of like, if you, once you start acknowledging the upper state houses, you will go from revolutionary to reformist and you will always get sucked in. Mm. And I, I think this is a, a topic we're touching back on at yeah, the, yeah. maybe the end of this when we come to this, but that, that level of purity and kind of like the saintly approach to some of this stuff, uh, I'm a I'm a ne'er do well degenerate man. I, I drink, I smoke, I, I had premarital sex. Sorry for those who didn't want to hear that, but but as a good Catholic boy, we weren't supposed to do that, right? So I have a very hard time with people who want to be good and pure. Um, but I often think that doesn't that doesn't lend itself to the real world in which we find ourselves. So in that sense I, I find his purity troubling. But that's a that's a me transferring my own neuroses onto brady mm, yeah I, it's this feeling that you know for what for all of us is not that important an issue like what what are the issues even you know there's a in some respects it doesn't seem like okay just to in a sense take a slight side jump Sinn Féin today does not go into Westminster that is lauded by some and decried by others but I think it makes a certain amount of sense um, being that I can't see the political utility in is I'm not you know I'm I'm not a member of Sinn Féin or anything like that but I'm just saying that if that's the framing that you've got I can see the sense that it makes this is a token of something and so forth and you can say that abstention was a token of something abstention was the token of resistance to the dispensation on the island 1920 1922 uh, the failure of the Republic the failure of um, the Freedom Project the fact that it had only got so far and that it was truncated 
and there was partition and so on and so forth. And I get that, like this I can completely understand and I can, I mean, to a certain extent, I can even identify with it. I can understand like how people took that view. But it seems to me to be like everything, that everything is about context and that you get to a point where maybe it doesn't make as much sense as it did in 1927 or 1945. And actually White makes a fascinating point in the book uh, talking about De Valera. And this is jumping back a little bit, well, quite a long way, actually. Um, he's talking about the free state and the arrival, in a sense, of Fianna Fáil, not into government, but into the free state, into the Dáil, or parliament. And he says, in a dramatic move, De Valera led his followers to Leinster House, signed the Oath of Allegiance and entered parliament. The decision haunts his place in history. And I thought to myself, I wonder who that is true of. Who in 2022, or even in, you know, 20, 2006, actually thinks that Fianna Fáil and De Valera entering into Leinster House haunts his position in history? Because he then obviously, he became Taoiseach. He implemented the 1937 constitution for better and for worse. Uh, he ultimately became president of the state and so forth. And to me, in some respects, I can understand from an abstentionist viewpoint, him entering uh, into the parliament haunts his place in history. But from the rest of, from everyone else, it doesn't haunt his place in history at all. It is an important and pivotal step and a key step on his move towards politics, but it's not the only one. And there are many others which one could look at and kind of say, well, you know, becoming Taoiseach was sort of a key thing, or perhaps um, repressive legislation against the IRA and other Republicans later on was also key. Anyway, sorry, I, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. What you mean to say is, so back in the real world, this is what happened, right? The only people who it haunts him for is the rump of Republican Sinn Feiners. And that's fine, and God bless them, they're entitled to their opinion. But yeah, that in and of itself, like, obviously the argument would be the abstentionists saw that once he entered Leinster House and took control of the state, mm. they would necessarily turn upon the Republican movement mm. and cannibalize them. And they did, both both electorally and then later with that regressive, uh, you know, the laws, let them die on hunger strike, the, the executions. Yeah, That's a fact, and, and, and so I can understand that. And so again, right? You're talking to a Republican movement whose year zero for a lot of that, right, was the Civil War. The the legislation of Fianna Fáil and, and successive Fianna Gael governments as well against the Republican movement and the IRA in particular does show, no, we were right because this is what happened. They turn on us. They turn their guns on the freedom fighters. Mm. So I get it. But again, what I'm going to say is, is uh, we, we mentioned earlier – puritanical approach to it right orwell in an essay on gandhi said right so like drinking and smoking are things a saint ought to avoid but sainthood is something that men ought to avoid um that applies both to royal brady but i also think the republican movement as a whole mm. abstentionism was about maintaining the purity and the virtue of the republican project but here's the deal about any sort of you talk about purity you talk about sanctity man that's for the church that's for the monarchy any Republican leftist, any leveling ideology, guess what? We're, we're down in the mud and the blood and the beer. 
to, mm. to misquote uh, Shel Silverstein and, and Johnny Cash song, mm. right? It, it, you can't have all of those things at the same time. And O'Brady and, and those like-minded chose the, the former of the purity and the sanctity, and laterally the provisionals chose the latter because they had to live it. Regardless of, the, of whether they're pure or not, they were still in the gutters, so to speak, metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. And so it didn't gain them anything. That purity didn't gain them anything. Mm. I, I do think that's something the book is incredibly strong on, actually, just talking about extension. It really does give you the totalizing um, sense of how important that was to this strand of Republicans. And you really do get a grasp of why it was important to them. This is what was the, this is the key thing. And this is this is the touchstone. This is the token. And that's why, as we've said, like, for instance, O'Brody could O'Brody could stomach a remarkable amount when it came to like the, the changing nature of the IRA or at least the positive change in nature up to the split. But um and even even you could say he went through not the similar process, or we'll get to that in a few minutes, but um, in relation to how the IRA changed in the 70s and on, and, and Sinn Féin changed as well. Um, uh, oh, and a small aside, Tomás Mugiola, fascinating to see him as a neutral in so much of this. Um, and and one small anecdote, I mean, O'Brody, I think, uh, sorry, Mugiola in a interview in McGill magazine, if I'm not incorrect, in the 2000s, said that he'd have no problem shaking Rory O'Brody's hand, but he'd never shake De Rossa's hand, uh, De Rossa, you know, after the split in the Workers' Party, which just goes to show how how, how views change and, and also how, how deeply embedded um, those sort of splits can be in the psyche of people who've had to go through them. Well, okay, well, so, I'm going to jump in right there, though, really quickly. Yeah. I, I, not just the splits, though... It, the one thing, right, because we're talking about abstentionism and, and maybe not mocking it, but it, it, it doesn't no, always no. make a lot of sense from a modern viewpoint, right? Mm. But so it it would be very easy to talk about O'Brady as kind of like a punchline, right? Mm. The, you yeah. know, the antiquated little little guy with his teetotaler badge and all that. But from multiple accounts from political rivals uh, before and after they left, mm. um, and he comes across as a and this is actually not from this book, although he does in this book as well. He comes across as an inherently decent human being who has a basis of uh, genial mannerisms, mm. right? The the even if he you know he's on the other side of the aisle to a large extent, he was a man of honor. He was a gentleman, for mm. lack of a better term, and he mm. was able to kind of carry that across. And I do think it speaks in a positive way to his legacy of uh, civility and, and mannerisms uh, across. A lifetime of of revolutionary political activity. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's an interesting point. I think, yeah. And the other side that comes across is he was actually a pretty good strategic thinker as well. A lot across a lot of the time because he was very very good at keeping his powder dry until it was necessary. And you know, I mean, and, and in a sense, this brings us to the split. I mean, he when it was necessary, and he says this himself, or at least he's quoted himself as. Um, having as many people to come with him as was possible. I mean, I think that was part and parcel of everything. He was he was putting up with a lot in order to maintain a, a toehold inside the provisional, uh, inside Sinn Féin before there was a split and with the IRA as well. And Joe Cahill actually, interestingly, bemoaned the fact that he had left earlier and that in doing so, he wasn't there to shape any of the discussions inside Sinn Féin in the 19, late 1960s. 
it's not clear immediately that the goals of the provisionals were entirely clear. Um, White suggests O'Brody's view was that Golding wanted to reform Stormont, whereas O'Brody wanted to abolish it. And he hoped that there might be a confrontation with Britain and then a return to the situation in the 1920s. But it's very difficult for me to map that onto the situation existing at that time, or even to understand how that could have been prosecuted militarily or politically in 1969, 1970, 1971. No, we referenced it the last time out. So now we're going to have to put a disclaimer. You got to listen to the first podcast in this one in quick succession and apologies in advance for that. <laughs> but the ad, the ad hocracy nature, right? And I think I can't obviously get in Joe Cahill's mind, but let's be very honest. The, the groupings that made up provisional IRA and Sinn Féin post splits were an ad hoc disparate group of people from the Southern traditionalists, from the defenderist element, the Northerners. Uh, so the grouping that was there, it's not like they had, you said they didn't have a goal. Their goal was also like traditional values, but also responding on the ground to what was happening in the North, which was unheard of in, in the modern Republican struggle, mm. which was, you know, the, the, the sectarian tinder box of Ulster exploding onto the streets. Mm. And, and I mean, man, like you think about pre-World War, you know, World War II actions versus what we would think of as the modern world today, right? The 1960s and 70s, it's, it's a strikingly different element, right? And I hate to go back to the context in which we're speaking because we, we lived it in the 1990s as well, but the idea of like a modern war in Europe, right? It challenges your mind and it, it kind of, it's, it puts you out of place to say, well, is this really happening now? How can this be taking it out of historical context? Because that's just, I don't know. It, it requires a different level of thinking that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around sometimes. Mm, so I, sure. can, I can empathize with someone like Cahill saying, yeah, I should have stayed in for the hall instead of coming back to a shit show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- there is one other small thing I'd like to touch on just about the splits. The deal inside the IRA in Belfast just before the split was very explicit. Um, from those who would go on to be the provisionals, uh, what was put to them was abandon socialism and, in a sense, effectively abandon politics. So the idea was that the IRA in Belfast had shifted too far towards um, politics, towards left politics to socialism. Uh, so it, it does it does suggest that there was a rebalancing and a tilting towards a more, I mean, I, I think when one says apolitical, one really means to a certain degree more right wing or anti-left-wing position. Um, and then the book also quotes Goulding is asking, he was asked by, sorry, Goulding was asked by O'Brody when the split came, what are you going to do with this? And no answer came. And O'Brody said, is, is, is quoted as suspecting, you know, they'd like to put you in the ground. But this was a question for, Obro- for Goulding more broadly. I mean, any, any reading is going to suggest that a Marxist IRA was always going to be arguably more marginal than a nationalist IRA, um, just simply by dint of the fact that Marxism wasn't necessarily the most popular ideology in Belfast in 1969-1970, any more than it was the most popular ideology in Dublin in 1969-1970. So 
a more traditional IRA was probably going to be better positioned at that particular point in time. Um, so in a way, like maybe O'Brady by moving back and the provisional moving back towards a less explicitly political AK left IRA, we're in a way almost by their complaints making a virtue of necessity because in actual fact, if they wanted to get the biggest, broadest support, they were going to have to appeal for, to people from all across the ideological spectrum or not at all. And, and that in a sense means that for a good period after that, the provisional IRA it's not really not left wing in the context of, say, the officials, but it's it's it seems almost an apolitical organization that is putting the politics very firmly as a secondary or even tertiary concern as against um, the primacy of the armed struggle. And even in that context, they don't seem to be entirely sure as to exactly where they're going to go with uh, the nature of the armed struggle at that time. It's the virtue out of necessity, right? The provisionals in Northern Ireland have always been wrapped in a, a cloak of ambiguity, right? Mm. I mean, you have the ability to be the the the, the spear point of anti-imperialism, right? Mm. And this is ties into what O'Brady did later on with with the relationships of uh, international stuff, be it the Basques, the the PLO, yeah. uh, the the armed wing of the ANC down in South Africa, uh, Latin America. They were more than happy to play that role, but there is that reality of I would say the adhocracy of defenderism, and again, used in the small d thing, and I, I really want to come back to that, mm. and I will, because it's my hobby horse, and I'm going to beat it to death, but um, they weren't talking about a traditional right-wing thing. They were, they were really talking, like, if a Marxist IRA had been able to produce the guns and the people to defend nationalist Belfast in that hour, then... I have a very hard time believing that many of the people who left and sided with the provisionals would have been would have done that, right? And mm. that's the challenge that we'll never know that the Dubliners were ill-equipped to address the, the quagmire of not only Northern Ireland, but, but Belfast specifically, mm. Belfast-centric politics, which are still an issue to this day. Mm. And, and therein lies a great deal of the the challenge of the, the whole thing and not one you can't really get up on the high horse just it's it's a challenge all the way around mm. there's, there's an interesting point made in the book that the provisionals were the traditionalists in the countryside they were in touch with each other um each other um and and a rural constituency many of them hadn't personally experienced august 1969 defense of the north is important but not important enough for them to join belfast in a split in september abstentionism was key to them so again it has this tokenistic quality i mean abstention is the is in a sense the thread that runs right the way through this to the split. And, but I'd argue that after the split, then it becomes um, Aaron Ewan in a weird kind of way, at least for O'Brody, that becomes where, where he, he starts to uh, put down his roots, as it were, inside uh, the provisional movement. Um, one, one last thought as well. O'Brody suggested afterwards, why didn't the officials start a new organisation? This would have avoided bitterness, in his opinion, which I, I, I think that's a, a little bit self-serving because you could argue, why didn't the provisional start a, a new organization, which they did in a sense, but... Because everyone is the original Coke. It's those guys who mm. are the, the deviants, right? And that's the point, right? From the official standpoint, hey, man, we're just rolling with the IRA like we've always done. It's the provisionals who are the deviants who are now all of a sudden insisting on democracy. 
and you'll see it the same way on down the line. But you're right, yeah. it's it's self-serving, but it goes back to that idea of there are are truisms that cannot be challenged within republicanism. It's mm. sacred cows. You, but you, you like know. we always say, sacred cows make the best hamburger. So right. there you right. go. You, you've also said, like you've been talking here about the defender tradition, and there's an interesting point made in the preface in some respects, O'Broady represents a different tradition, one of Wolftown and so forth. But it is interesting as well that at the Arcora meeting after Burntalis, McStiffon asked um, that the IRA create auxiliary units for defence, especially in Derry, and Goulding refused. And later the point was made that in the 1920s, the Belfast IRA had um, organised defence committees. And Goulding then said, well, it's not our job to be Catholic defenders. When the time comes, we'll put up to the official forces, i.e. the British Army or the RUC, to defend the people. And his thinking was that the British would come in to protect Nashus from the RUC. And interestingly, O'Brody rejected this and he was disgusted. And he said that, he asked rhetorically, like, what if the British don't protect Nashus from the RUC? And it intrigues me as well, like, because... In a sense, that does place O'Brody at least closer to that defenderist viewpoint, maybe, than might be thought. And then if we hop a bit forward to, you know, post-1976, provisional prisoners in the maze were very upset at the IRA involvement. And this is a direct quote. They were upset at the IRA involvement in sectarian attacks and the feud with the officials in October 1975, which suggests perhaps in the provisionals at that point in time, at the, the, the hard edge of those who actually were in um, prison, they too didn't necessarily identify with the um, defenders tradition, or at least not to the extent that some people might think. Yeah, I mean, a very cynical reading of Goulding would be that any pogrom would be a great recruiting sergeant for the IRA, right? Same mm. thing we saw with, with bloody sunday mm. right uh that'd be a very cynical reading of it i don't know if that's true or not and and that's a separate conversation yeah but again right we're but we're we're also talking about defenderism in a very literal sense of of defending areas and i i think we're 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 falling into that trap of which in my opinion so many are guilty of and and the the individual who wrote the foreword in my opinion is guilty of the same thing that Defenderism is always the poor cousin of proper republicanism, right? So mm. that, but it's missing the point that the Catholic defenders as a historical organization were went far beyond the literal defense of Catholics, although they did do that. They also agitated and fought for the rights of the incipient Irish nation. Mm. And that's, you know, it's great that there were a couple of elitist Protestants who decided to form the United Irishmen. But guess what? Like, that's great that your generals are that, but the, the, the front line, the bleeding edge of your army tended to be the poor Catholic nationalist peasant. And you see them playing out in ways of acting as like a proto-trade union in Dublin, uh, being active in agrarian and, and rural conflicts in areas where sectarianism was not really an issue, right? So that they, they served as kind of a, a politicizing force for the subaltern. Mm. um would be would be my take on that one and that's something i i would really love to come back to at a, mm. at a later date but yeah, yeah. i i do Definitely. think that there's a lot of things going on there that's mm. all, i'll leave it at that 
the other like there's key things as well like the identification O'Brady has with Aaron Ewa which the book says was initially worked on with Roy Johnson and Sean O'Brady um, and of course Aaron Ewa posited a federal Ireland with a Doyle Ola consisting of the quote-unquote traditional nine counties of Ulster and the idea would be that this would give a sort of protection to Ulster unionists because they would have a small majority in a nine county Ulster. And it's, it's I mean, it's it's in the archive, in the left archive for any who want to read it. It's got chapters on economic resistance, on finance, industry, agriculture, forestry and so forth. At the very in, at the very end of the document, it has the structure of the a new constitution for Ireland, the draft charter of rights, uh, a provincial government, four democratically elected provincial parliaments, Dolla, 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 uh and Donoghue, uh, based on the four historic provinces of Ireland. There's the federal government, which would be a single chamber of approximately 150 deputies. Uh, so that would sit over the provincial governments. And then there's um, regional governments and community governments. So regional government is administrative and community government is local. Uh, and this was something which O'Brady hugely identified with. And the provisionals put out an enormous amount of material on this throughout the 1970s. Um, there were reprints. The very first one, the Social Economic Programme of Sinn Féin, comes out in 1971, but it's it's reprinted numerous times in this. It's often alluded to by documents from the uh, movements during that period and after. And indeed, even with the Republican Sinn Féin, uh, it was still being pushed by them as well. But what's your feeling about that? Well, look, here's the thing, right? That's their response to saying you're mindless gunmen. You're just terrorists. You have no other goal than to, uh, you know, bomb a million Protestants into the Republic. It's their way of saying, no, we're legitimate. Because whatever about the Provisional Army Council and then obviously through, I believe, McGuire, uh, the Republican Sinn Féin Army Council, uh, you know, being the true government of Ireland, oh look, man, yeah. the Army Council wasn't worried about the GDP and economic output, right? They were, they were a guerrilla army. It's a nice fig leaf to say we're not mindless terrorists, have that cover. But this was their way of saying, like, we are serious political thinkers. Because a, a street fight man off, the, off Belfast or Derry or off a country lane in Fermanagh is not – that's not a great statesman, right? And it's the same issue, especially as the, the troubles – drug out and it was just year and year out of this grind very competent guerrilla soldiers you know but lacking in kind of the political acumen like sean McStalfin was many things but he wasn't a great man to say this is how we're going to form the new irish nation mm. so that i that's where i view it as and i think that's why for o'brady it was so important and it became a hill worth dying on it wasn't about federalism i mean it was for him but for him, the value in it was that Sinn Féin was not a joke. Mm. It was not just a cover. It's not a rubber stamp for the IRA. It was a serious political party with serious political ideals. Yeah. Now, whether or not this Gaelicized Ireland represented largely by devout Catholics who were busy bombing and shooting their way through Ulster and murdering German businessmen – if that was going to speak to the union's population, I don't think so. 
but they were making the effort. And it, it, it is a serious political theory. I don't know if it's a hill that I would have died on, but, but I'm not them. So that's how I view it, though. It's, it's not about federalism, but I, I stand back at this for move, right? We've had more time since the Good Friday Agreement than the troubles were going on, right? It's been 30 years since that remove. And, man, loyalism is getting its knickers in a knot over an invisible line between England and Northern Ireland that was implemented by England. So I have a very hard time that this would have been bought by anyone in these populations. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, again, yeah, yeah. there were there were a few loyalists who were like, oh yeah, I, I can see that. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like if we're having a brain exercise, I'll I'll see that that could work. But no one's actually going to step out of that exercise and go back into their communities and sell that. And those that did try to were drummed out of of their positions within loyalism and unionism. Mm. So it, in my mind, it was DOA. So, yeah. you know, but again, uh, it, it really wasn't about that program in the first place. Like it does seem to me, yeah, I'd agree completely. Like it does seem to me to misunderstand unionism completely. It, it, it doesn't understand that unionism isn't simply a political block. It's also an identity block. So, I mean, what it doesn't even begin to address, like how would one be an Ulster unionist in a nine county federal parliament in Ireland, which would presumably you'd be giving your allegiance to an Irish independent republic. How does that work? I don't understand how a unionist would function in that context. And, and it doesn't seem to, uh, you know, it talks about unionists would still have power, but unions wouldn't have identity in that context. So I don't understand how they would be in the slightest bit attracted to it in any serious level. Uh, power is one thing, it's not unimportant, it's massively important, of course, it's gonna be important in whatever future dispensation we have, but it's, you know, do you have the Ulster Unionist Party organizing as a, as, as a political unit in Dualola? And what does that mean? How are they being unionists? Are they only being unionists yeah. by dint of being, you know, you know, got like there's 10 unionists there and they all glom together and, and you've got Republicans over there. And it's like, but the union is going to try and have as many unions elected as possible. And to what end? And, and I mean, another aspect actually on the federalism thing is it would see three, three counties from the Republic going in under Dalola. And, you know, Donegal and it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to quite credit that they'd necessarily want to go into Dalola. You know? <laughs> it seems to be such an abstruse and abstract sort of solution. And again, I don't want to say it's not serious. It's not sincerely held. It, it completely is. And, and it means a huge amount to him. But I mean, as, 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 as the 70s progress, like, I mean, there's other things coming. There's the whole issue, of course, of um, the engagement with the British and they move to the ceasefire and that goes not terribly well. I mean, the British, it would appear on any reading subsequently were stringing them along um, attempting in a sense to generate a process of attrition of the IRA's capacity to fight. All right. Shocker, Britain acts in bad faith. Um, that's not a surprise to anyone. I, I think actually Dr. Hanley called it last time, right? When when they were when the provisionals sent their people to meet with the British, they really did think that they were the second coming of of Michael Collins. And I think there was very much a 
misunderstanding about what the actual aims of those talks were and it, it paid the price but man yeah it, it did not work out well and it's those who thought they were just gonna like walk in stamp their hands on the table and tell them you know now you need to get out you're not really reading the situation that well yeah i think that's true uh, and that that raises sorry that raises another angle as well which i think is important in that this is then used subsequently by the by a generational shift and a political shift to the north and to people like Danny Morrison and obviously Jerry Adams and people around them who look back on the cessation and they say to themselves this was and they they argue this was bad this was a bad idea I think I've mentioned before how um, in the maze the prisoners in the maze were particularly disgruntled by sectarian attacks and by feuding with the officials and stuff like that. They they didn't think that's what the IRA should be doing at that point in time. And then there's another angle as well, which is there seems to be a sort of spotty control over the IRA as an organisation, um, possibly due to the structural aspect of it, because after this, they then move in the late 70s towards the cell and the, the cell structure and so forth, uh, which is a lot more controlled, it would appear. But, but these, these all come together as a mass of complaints about the O'Brody, McStiffon, O'Connell leadership. Well, O'Connell, I guess, and O'Brody as time goes on. Um, and this sense that somehow the provisionals have lost their way in the mid seventies and as the decade draws to a close. Yeah. Well, it's true, right, that the early 1970s saw a level of violence within Northern Ireland that was just not matched in any modern history. That That's for darn sure, right, with an IRA that was geared up specifically to fight in the North. Mm. Um, but it's a double-edged sword, right? So, again, I'm, I'm going to keep going back to our last podcast, talk about Joe McCann, right? Why was Joe McCann famous? Joe McCann was famous because, man, that guy would attack the British Army on the way to a meeting to attack the British Army, right? They're, they were going to get together and say, okay, we're going to ambush the British. Well, on the way there, he would take a couple pot shots at, at the British on the way there, be it, be it the, you know, the RUC or the British Army themselves. It, it was that level of violence and discord and civil disruption. But look, jump forward, right, into the, the new IRA, right, with uh, Lyra, Lyra McKee, mm. the, the journalist who, who unfortunately was, was killed during that riot in Derry by someone firing a handgun at police, right? The unintended consequences of that type of action and disruption, you saw that in things like, you know, just Bloody Friday, not even to go down, like, the, the purposely planned things like Kingsmill, but mm. just the ad hoc, just the ad hoc nature of the violence was mm. such that it was it was brutal, and and it is also highlights like, in what world is someone whose community and town being placed under such attack gonna say, yeah, I will totally go for a Gaelic Ireland, you know, as long as we have a, a, a small you know a small majority within nine counties, it again it, it's like back in the real world this is what's happening. And it, it had a way of subduing that political voice. Mm. But obviously, with the imprisonment of so many people from that level of activity, 
that had to change. It was not sustainable. And I think that's where you're really seeing that Northern voice step up. Because again, whatever positive things you say about O'Brady, it's not his fault, but he lived in Roscommon. So he got the luxury that he got to go home outside the war zone, right? Where, where the young Turks, as they were, much maligned though they may be in certain circles uh, of, you know, Jerry Adams, Danny Morrison, Martin McGinnis, Jerry Kelly, you know, Jerry Kelly got to go home to North Belfast. Jerry Adams got to go home to West Belfast. They never left the war zone for better or for worse. That was not within their capacity. And that has to shape their thinking. Like they're living it and they're, they're living it and playing at much higher stakes than, and, and again, like I, there's a note made and it's, it's actually very true. And this is like where I'm very conflicted. Maybe this is a good sign because I'm, I'm always very conflicted and, and torn about this. Obviously, Roy O'Brady dedicated his entire life to the Republican movement. And so, and he really believed in that. So you, I, I don't want to minimize it, right? But he very much, you know, put his teaching career at risk. But that's the deal, right? In times when it allowed, he was able to go back for a little while to a normal life, quote unquote, right? Whereas the Northern leadership Man, they just went back home to a war zone. It never stopped. They never got a respite. So that has to color your thinking about how how things play out. And, and then there's another angle as well, which is you have what was meant to be a short war. And I think the, the ceasefire proved that was simply not hap- happening. Shifting into a long war, into a war which had no end, you know, seemingly no end. And... Even there, what we're talking about, say, with the Sinn Féin, which is putting out a lot, awful lot of policies, but has no real life in Sinn Féin in terms of being much more than, a, as I say, an adjunct to the IRA. Suddenly, the need for politics in a long war comes into play immediately because you have to keep the support structures going, not just within the movement, but more broadly, because it needs to have a broader constituency who it can interact with and give it uh not just, I mean, the support that's getting on an ad hoc basis, you know, um, houses and cars and what have you, but but the political support to keep it moving forward again, five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years. And that need for politics in a long war as against the lack of need or lack of pure need of it in a short war surely has to have implications in terms of where the situation goes next. I mean, in essence, one can look at Adams and, you know, there's the conspiracy, no, I don't want to say it's conspiratorial, but there's a sort of negative view of that. And, you know, they came in and they were pushing from politics for politics from the off, or they were, you know, they're pushing for us to say, you know, the, where we wound up is where they wanted to go. I don't think that's necessarily accurate at all. I, I get the feeling they were trying one button and it didn't work and they tried another button and it didn't work and so on and so forth with regard to tactics and strategies. Um, but that at the end of the day, they had to turn around at some point and there had to be simply due to the structural constraints, a shift into a much more politicized context. And the, the, the fact that the, the hunger strikes then come up in the late 70s, early 1980s and provide this, I don't want to call it uh, cover, but it provides a key example of what politicization can do in terms of generating that political support above and beyond just 
the immediate community the Republicans live within or the parts of it that are supportive to them, because not all of it was by any means, then that generates a different sort of set of circumstances and it becomes exemplary. People can then point to, say, that history of the hunger strikes and say, well, actually, this mobilized people in a way that we hadn't seen on the island previously, arguably. Yeah, it, it certainly did set, a, in, in my mind, it set a new, I mean, I keep saying this, it's probably like the third year zero we're talking about. Mm. But there's no doubt that the hunger strikes reset the clock of a massive political impact to a broad swath of people, sorry, uh, yeah. worldwide, but also very particularly in in Ireland. Wait, you don't have to support the provisionals to argue that it's not just about crime, mm-hmm. right? The, the issues are inherently political and have a political cause and a political root. You can't treat them as just an aberration of the criminal code. Yeah, and that's that was that point where it provided that breathing room to actually try some new things in in a new context, right? And again, you're talking we talked about by elections serving as a timestamp or an instantaneous poll. That by election, unplanned as it were, provided the Republican movement a chance to seize upon public sentiment in regards to the political nature of the trouble. Yeah, yeah. And that had implications as well. I mean, for instance, the book makes, uh, I think the book takes a line to a certain degree that Adams, for instance, never acknowledged being a member of the IRA and so forth, which I think is something that's true to this very day. On the other hand, one thinks of Adams carrying the coffin, I think of the Shanko bomber. Is that correct? That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Very true. Yeah. And that's a identification between the political and the military project, which I'm not sure was as close, in, certainly not in that very stark, iconic sort of fashion, uh, in the 70s. It's not, of course, I mean, O'Brody and the leadership turned up for funerals and so forth, absolutely, when they could, although he was, of course, uh, excluded from Northern Ireland during it. I think he was excluded in perpetuity, actually, after a certain point. But, you know, it, yeah, it kind of it kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier about, like, the, 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 the ability to enter or leave a war zone and, and what that means. Do you think then that it was inevitable between, the, say, the period of the end of the hunger strikes and the period where he where, where Aaron Ewers overturns and where ultimately he loses the position as president of Sinn Féin? Do you think that was an inevitable process or do you think there was a way that that could have been circumvented i mean even playing monday morning quarterback i I don't see how it could have worked out differently right we know all the players involved so i don't see how it could have worked it doesn't mean it's what he couldn't have i i think honestly the early provisionals and and royal brady and, and his grouping they didn't have an answer for northern ireland and honestly i don't think anyone does i think the provisionals have come the closest of any number of groupings uh, that, I mean, think about it like this, right? The, the actual Republican government in 1916, any slew of the free state parties and then the Republic of Ireland parties, the Nationalist Party, the SDLP, and then the provisionals, let alone the British government of the Unionists, no one quite knows what to do with Northern Ireland. That continues to this day with the Tories in Westminster and the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
Mm. Um, at least the provisionals, the one thing you can say about them is they at least have their finger on the pulse of the, the Northern Irish nationalist population because that's their community. That's, that's where they're from. And I mean, you're, you're very right that it, Jerry Adams never distanced himself from the IRA during their worst atrocities. He may say he didn't agree with it, and, and Rory did the same thing. Mm, yeah, and he he did, you know, I believe it was Bobby Sands' funeral off the top of my head that he tried to get into Northern Ireland. He couldn't. That's right. It it just speaks to that that different reality of it. Jerry Adams didn't have to get into Northern Ireland. Hell, he couldn't leave there half the time. Yeah, he was so, he was he was actually blocked from going to the UK from. Yeah, yeah he just had to like he Britain. literally had to step out of his front door and he could join the procession to Milltown, yeah. right? And a, a lot of times too, it, you think about right. So I think we just came up on the anniversary of the killings at Gibraltar, right? Mm. And the Gibraltar yeah. Three, and then the attack of Michael Stone, and then the attack on the corporals, right? Which mm serves for many people as just this little encapsulation of the brutality and the senseless violence and just the sense of yeah it's everywhere it's international but then it's all happening in this condensed time in this condensed place of, mm. of west belfast and that's the point right jerry Adams steps out of his front door and that is his world versus rory being able to step back and i think at some point the northerners once you get two to three to five to 10 years in, man, they want control because they're the ones who are, are fighting and dying and, and going to prison disproportionately, right? It's their war. It's on their doorstep. Hmm. And so I think they wanted that control. The other problem is, aside from Air Nua, man, the Southern leadership didn't have a solution other than to make Northern Ireland ungovernable and, and hope that something progressive would come out of that chaos which it didn't so yeah. at that point man you know you had your turn let it go and so yeah we're going to come back to abstentionism that was the hill that he left on mm. but let's be honest federalism was the hill the royal brady died on his you know his political corpse just rested there until abstentionism came back up yeah, because he, he was he was very, very. And again, he was sincerely wedded to the concept of federalism like that. There's there's no insincerity there whatsoever. That was his that was his project. And he clearly did not take it well when that was voted down. And um, and, and you can understand all points of view on this inside inside Sinn Féin in terms of, yeah, of course, like people who said, well, why would we have any concession whatsoever to unionism? That makes no sense whatsoever from their perspective. You know, why would why would we not just skip straight to United Ireland as distinct from a very convoluted mechanism, which is probably going to leave an awful lot of people even more. <laughs> now, of course, ironically, now we're in a situation where we hear talk about reverse GFAs and, you know, um, the six counties remaining, not necessarily quite as is, but within a, a UI and stuff like that. So this is sort of weird. <laughs> change the, the the wheel has turned yet again and uh, it's hard to know exactly where it goes um one other angle i was thinking about in preparation for this is of course the growing leftism albeit not in the traditional official sense uh of the of Sinn Féin under the adams and morrison leadership which again 
I don't think O'Brody cared about whatsoever. He Again, he just saw that as yet another zigzag. I don't think he had any strong feelings whatsoever. That was never his issue, I think, with the leadership. It ultimately came to 1986, and Sinn Féin, provisional Sinn Féin, decides they will enter Dáil Éireann, and they will... Um, and that was the key. That was the break. That was the rupture for him. I would very much agree. There is, in the context of 1969, the idea that the provisional IRA is the traditional Catholic nationalist, you know, the stereotypical 308 round with the, the you know, rosary beads wrapped around it ideology. I don't think that's ever been the case. I think that there were those within the provisional IRA who had a, a time in the sun, but they were, they were a temporary strain. Many within the provisional IRA, I mean, look, man, they are pro-Cuba. They trained you know, Marxist rebels in Colombia, uh, yeah, you know, involved well. with anything. They're yeah, left wing, yeah. right? But, yeah. but the point is that always was, again, when you're in the middle of a shooting war in a place as small as Northern Ireland, guess what? There's not a lot of room for getting out and getting counselors elected and, and working on that type philosophy mm. while there are bombs going off. There's just mm. not. Mm. So a lot of that took that secondary seat and I think it's, it is a credit. I mean, this is the point, right? It's a credit to the provisionals and northern leadership that they eventually said, if we want to be left-wing, if we want to pursue something other than just blowing things up, because I think they realized they could create a level of chaos, but they could wreck Northern Ireland, but they couldn't wreck Britain, right? And even though they tried, Lord knows they tried, it wasn't going to happen. So they had to, to, to kind of find a piece to that. And again, it's, it's interesting. The, the Workers' Party was able to find a space for themselves in Dublin in the 80s as that working class voice of, of dissent, right? And kudos to them because that, that, that's important. And the provisionals kind of wanted to do that eventually, but they couldn't because let's be honest, right? support for the provisional for provisional champagne was as popular as the latest bad operation right it only took one bad operation to 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 knock you back into the fucking gutter for however long that memory cycle lasted yeah and and again i i should i i want to emphasize because something i reflect on very very much these days is that man we're talking about oh well as soon as the, the political memory fades but obviously those actions, especially the ones that, that went wrong, say like at Inniskillen, mm. that left lifelong multi-generational scars on a community and many people and families who were innocent in many ways. Mm. Um, not to let alone anything the British state has done, especially mm. on that one. But it's worth remembering that, right? It's not just a political cycle like we think of it now in the terms of 24-hour news cycle you're talking about very deep communal generational scars there, mm, right? So yeah, for very obvious reasons, it's hard to build a, a political party with that attached to it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, because I mean, I think it's not that O'Brien stopped stopping politically active in 1986, quite the opposite. He, he was exceedingly active in many respects but it seems to me that the space within which he was active had condensed down or had narrowed to a much less uh 
broad area than he'd hitherto been engaged in. And, you know, Republican Sinn Féin, which, of course, is extant to this day, um, I don't even want to sound unfair to the man because, I mean, as I say, like he was very active and so forth. But its relevance, I guess, in a broader sense, was lesser than might have been expected because circumstances changed, the situation obviously accelerated into a peace process. There was an interesting point in History Ireland the other day. I was reading a copy of it and uh, a point was made in a review of, um, let me see, Eamon O'Kane's book, The Northern Ireland Peace Process, From On Conflict to Brexit, and the review is by Kitty McGrattan of Ulster University. And he makes an interesting point that um, O'Kane's treatment of complexity with clarity is his eschewing uh, a simplistic dating of the peace process, which he argues did not so much begin as emerge in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And I must say, I actually find a lot to agree in that. I think that the peace process did emerge. There were a lot of different strands which kind of came together and pushed it forward. And then one can say that it, I think the review says, or O'Kane says in his book, that it got to the point where people couldn't step back from it. Anybody, nobody involved, unionists, nationalists, Republicans, the British government, the Irish government, and so forth. But Republican Sinn Féin plays no part in any of this. It is literally not at this race. It does not wish to be at this race. O'Brody, throughout the 90s, is deeply critical of what is happening in Sinn Féin and the provisional IRA. And right up to the end, um, you know, he calls Sinn Féin post-Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement, as reformist and Republican Sinn Féin as revolutionaries. And I, I, I suspect that was his own self-image. And White notes O'Brody asking how Pyra justified the last 25 years of conflict. Though White, and I think this is very much um, shows how measured his approach is, he says others might ask, how do we justify a campaign that cannot be won? Uh, so there is a sense... In, of O'Brody still being very active, but the activity, the context has now changed utterly once you hit the peace process, changed completely. And there isn't really a space there for O'Brody to exist politically where he's going to make a huge amount of difference, if any at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's telling that the last 30 years of his career are covered in less than 30 pages and i think it's like page 240 45 yeah. leads up to that point yeah and then yeah like like 30 years just gets condensed down to you know like a decade every 10 pages yeah even the area where between 1980 and 1986 is covered in much less detail not not in less detail but less happens in a sense even though an awful lot does happen than the preceding periods it's a very valid point which is to say even by the early 80s right as that shift to the long war the restructuring into the cell system at that point the hunger strikes it, it took the, i don't know if it's a great way to put it but it took the wind out of a Brody's sails mm. right he lost control of the northern project mm. and the northern just started picking that up themselves yeah. um again this is where it would be easy to kind of turn O'Brady into like the punchline of history because honestly, I'm glad he's wrong. I'm glad that, that like continuity IRA isn't still active I'm, for a whole slew of reasons. And, and you get into ideology, but at a base point, even white acknowledges that the good Friday agreement has been good for Northern Ireland. Mm. Right. 
and yep. and man of all the hills to die on that's a puritanical one mm. and you don't want to you don't want to just mock people mercilessly because you know lord knows i turned 40 in like three days so i i get that like you know maybe my best days are behind me that, that i didn't accomplish what i wanted to accomplish blah 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 but man i i i think it's admirable that he remained personable and dedicated to his belief system throughout that but there's also that there is a tendency and maybe it's a backlash to the adams team and the adams project Hmm. right and you see it play out in 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 many notes be it the the individual who wrote the forward uh be it brendan hughes and some other folks but there's this lament for the pure Irish gunman. And I think that Ireland as a society is better, well, boy, for lack of a better term, and this is, a, this is very much lack of a better term, a pragmatic gunman, right? Who knows when it's time to put it away? Because there's only so much you can do with guns. That's what, that's what the U.S. found out in Afghanistan. Yeah, they could win militarily, but they couldn't create a political settlement, uh, a political settlement militarily. Right, you have to have that buy-in, and you can't do that when bombs are going off and and, and people are being shot and murdered. Mm. You have to have that growth to the next system. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's just middle-aged angst on my part. So sorry about that. <laughs> pre-middle-aged, just pre-middle-aged. Um, I think that's in a way that's a good spot to think about closing the discussion because you know it's again it's a fantastic book. It's extremely well written it really covers so much of interest and we're not even beginning to do justice to it here um uh because i'd recommend it for anybody who's interested in irish republicanism and history to read it i think it's an important book too um and i think it's one of those books where you read it and it does raise significant questions but it also answers a lot of questions as well and uh you know i mean one of the things that strikes me, take, I mean, this is just a small thing, it's almost an aside, but one of the things that does strike me is that there are all these competing myths about um, provisional republicanism. And in a sense, they're all right. I mean, you know, the, 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 the centrality of abstentionism, um, the nature of the United Ireland that's meant to come out of it, the, the place of armed struggle and the primacy of that, which is actually something we haven't really discussed too heavily. I mean, it's fair to say that O'Brien was strongly um, in favour of armed struggle as a mechanism for uh, reversing partition, I think is one way of putting it, you know, and it was something that he he did not have any particular problem with. In fact, to the point that, as you said earlier, like, um, although he would condemn individual actions, there was never a sense that he systemically had a problem overall with it, uh, per se. You know, it, it's 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 hard to really see. He didn't dissent from what he was having to do at any point. There's never a sense that he dissented per se from the process that the provisional IRA and provisional Sinn Féin engaged in during all of the period that we're discussing up until eighty six. Yeah, very much so, and it's it's yeah, yeah. I mean. He stood by it. He was a man of principle. 
but man, those principles are sometimes worth questioning. And I think that's a, a, a larger, take it, take it the one step back, right? Not just about a Brady, but, but I think every principle is, is worth reevaluating. Cause I think if it, the one thing that I leave this book with having revisited it, uh, oh man, it's now 11. Cause I read it. Yeah. Oh, I read it quite a while. I mean, over a decade ago, right? Revisiting hmm. it now, the principles, the the hills that he died on, are worth reexamining. And it's it's I think it it's not that you sell out to any point, right? Like you don't want to become centrist, right? And the and the point, whatever which way the the opinion polls go, I'm there. But I do think that it's always worth evaluating where you stand and why you stand there. I still believe objectively the same things I believed when I was 18. But man, I am coming at it from a different viewpoint now, and it's, you know, with a different flavor. And I think that's just good to do because they may change, but at least they'll be fresh and genuine. You're not, you're not stuck trying to defend something that you said 20, 30 years ago. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that'd be a thought there. Yeah, it's in a way it's hard to look at it from this remove and not say abstentionism. It seems an odd one in some respects, because we're now in such a massively different context, obviously. Um, as you were saying earlier, like loyalism and unionism are now preoccupied and exercised over um, the RC quote unquote border. And we're in a situation of Brexit and the utility of the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement, and, and, and the need to have uh, an effectively invisible border and the islands and things like that. And these are actually, you know, it's not a united Ireland, obviously, at this point in time, but it is something that is perhaps striking out towards that. And there's very little sense that armed struggle per se is something that has any place or part on the island at this point in time. And you have a Sinn Féin, and I'm not saying this in a party political sense at all, but I mean, simply as a phenomenon, Sinn Féin is now the most popular in polling anyway. Uh, political party in the state getting 30 30 percent plus of the the polls every single time and that has implications as well and, it's, and it retains its um popularity in northern Ireland to, to a greater or lesser extent so i mean everything has changed so far that and yet all the things that happened had to happen to get to the point where we are today where things have changed so far that though the the the, the preoccupations of those periods of time simply seem not invalid that's the that'd be incorrect they simply anachronistic have, anachronistic they have no purchase on the present period of time you know abstention as an issue as a principle seems to have literally no purchase on today well well let me let me go back and contradict myself because please do. i was thinking about this well no you you noted it the the only abstentionism that still remains is Sinn Féin not taking their seats at Westminster. Yeah. And, and, and that one, and that's very much been obviously uh, in 2017 uh, with the, with the death of Martin McGuinness and the collapse of Stormont after the mm. RHI scandal, um, the SDOP were wiped out. Right. Mm. And they had no seats at Westminster. And then in, in the subsequent elections, Colin Eastwood uh, won a seat back there. And, a couple of things have struck me, right, is in the the post-Bolly Murphy massacre when that report was there, mm. um, 
Colm Eastwood stood up into a largely empty, you know, house, you know, in, in Parliament and proclaimed the innocence of so many Irish civilians murdered by the British Army, again, to an empty house. Of Commons, uh, yeah. Recently, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, there was nobody there. Like, this was not some grand moment where mm. the British public, the English public woke up to the crimes of the British Army and said, my God, what have we done? They just didn't. They didn't care. I, I would point out that even now, uh, at the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, he did the same thing. He pointed out the fact that by a Tory government investigation, they were innocent civilians, only to have Northern Ireland's greatest, Sammy fucking Wilson, you know, harangue him from the audience, saying, you know, just it's it is a shambles it's shambolic and to act like you know i don't know british parliament has not done ireland justice in any sense of the word and it is not through lack of articulate people going to that house and speaking there be it you know bernadette devlin or you know colin eastwood or any number of people from the sdlp it's just, I don't know, man. It, it's it's disheartening. So, because you can even see an argument to be made against abstentionism. But you see Colin Eastwood make his arguments. He's a very articulate speaker. Mm. But no one is there to listen. Because honestly, and this is a point that I think loyalism needs to learn, nobody cares. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, that's a little bit of a downer, but... I so, feel it's true. So is that the appetite? So in a sense, to sum it up, like Rory O'Brady, in part right. Yes, no one is 100% right or 100% wrong, yeah. unless you're in opposition to me, in which case you were 100% wrong. Okay, right. Um, yeah, so I, I think that kind of knocks on the head, uh, or wraps up rather, knocks on the head. No, I think, let me start again. I think that wraps up the discussion on the book, and we've already given, I think, a lot of good reasons for people to read it and uh, so forth. Now we said we would take two minutes to discuss on air what book for the next sequence of podcasts coming later this year we would discuss. Um, now I had suggested Deadly Divisions uh, on the INLA to, as it were, continue this I was kind of suggesting that because, you know, we've done kind of the officials and we've examined to an extent the provisionals, at least through one figure, though mind you, there's now an argument to look at the provisionals through a different figure from the 80s and on through to the 90s. I had suggested deadly divisions and you said you had a suggestion for something else and I do not know what you intend to suggest. So I'm very, very curious as to what you're going to suggest and how many pages there will be in it and how many I have to read. So if you would now care to tell me, yeah. I'd be very happy. Well, I, I think Comrade. one of the books that, that's really framed how I approach a lot of uh, my reading of Irish history is uh, Jim Smith's Men of No Property, oh, which right. it takes a look at more the the popular politics of the time of the French Revolution and, and Wolf Tone. Uh, again, moving that focus away from the elite to yeah. the masses in that kind of incipient development of mass politics. So, yeah. okay, that sounds great. Oh, well, I mean, I liked it at the time. Now, 
I haven't read it in a while, so maybe we go back and it'll be incredibly boring and dry. But you know, it'll well, give me an excuse to come back out on bullshit. Well, this well, I was going to say because I was thinking this halfway through this, I was thinking to myself, who on earth gave us the right to talk about somebody else's book? But I mean, we're. I guess if we consider ourselves at least a little bit informed or reasonably well informed about stuff, we've read a bit here and there. I mean, we've got as much right as anybody to talk about anything on a podcast relating to the Irish Deaf Archive, which, okay, so Men of No, yeah, that's fantastic. Men of No Property, Jim Smith. Um, there's the whole, there's the whole thing of, this is a podcast about the Irish Deaf Archive and many of the documents we've been discussing are actually in the archive. Um, yeah, so, I mean, in particular, you'll find Aaron, Aaron uh, we have tagged those together because there's a good few versions there from, you know, that early 71, which wasn't called Aaron New, but sort of broadly mm. um, through to Republican Sinn Féin uh, editions of it as well. Yeah, I, I think that was that the 90s, I think the RSF one was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a kind of an interesting comparison available there. And, the, and then there's a heap of other things. I mean, we've got the Sinn Féin, Ardesh, 86, Chlorogus Ruin, which I think is mm. well worth a read for anybody who wants to see, like... Um, oh, and then One Ireland, One People from Sinn Féin in 1984, which mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of bit on the nose, isn't it? It's like, you know, there you go now. Um, and, uh, and, of course, it then continues right the way up to the present day. Well, not quite. I think our latest one is 2014, but... Um, yeah, we'll link, we'll link the Aaron New stuff into the uh, notes uh, and encourage people for continuity to listen to episode number 25, which uh, Charles has managed to tie in a few times. So now we have to yeah. put the two together. <laughs> Doing our job for us. This is fantastic. <laughs> and so, so hold on. I have, to, I have to just be absolutely clear. We will look at Deadly Divisions at some point, won't we? I'll be back as many times as y'all let me. It, this, is, this is your party. I'm just showing up for the free beer so okay here. <laughs> well, free beer as always i very much appreciate you having me on well we're very glad you came along thank you very much and yeah um thanks to everybody who's listening as well very much appreciated. it